Good morning. What a beautiful day and uh, what a great day to be here together. I always enjoy preaching, but I really enjoy the days, the Sundays that I'm not preaching, partly because I just get to kind of be with people and I get to chat in the lobby and I'm not trying to think about other things. That's part of it. I, I just enjoy the people who are part of this church. But also because I, I will sit and I'll listen to Devin or to Joe or to Will or to Tom or to Dan, who's going to be speaking in a couple of weeks, and, and, and just be blessed and learn and celebrate the fact that we have so many people at, at church that are so competent and, and, and loving and helpful teachers. And, and I don't just mean that um, preaching on Sunday mornings, but throughout the church, Sunday school leaders and small group leaders, we are really blessed with so many people who are able to open up the Word of God and, and just to teach it in such helpful, practical, insightful ways. And uh, this morning, we have an opportunity to hear from someone who is outside of our church, um, and, and that's a great blessing, too, because we get to hear the Word of God from a different voice today. Uh, our uh, friend, Gary Thomas is uh, visiting um, our church this morning. Uh, you may have heard of Gary. He's a very popular um, author and speaker and also a pastor. He's a teaching pastor at a church that is out in Colorado. Uh, Gary wrote a book recently on marriage called Cherish, and so we asked if he would come in and lead a conference for um, spouses, which he did uh, Friday and Saturday, and he's going to be uh, leading um, some, some talks uh, tonight, this evening, for those who are, are not married. But we had a wonderful weekend together. He's, he's visiting with his wife, uh, Lisa, who has been wonderful to get to know as well. And uh, so we're looking forward to Gary coming to speak uh, to us this morning. He said he would speak on anything. We said, well, how about if you pick something that's not marriage? You know, and um, so he chose a subject that... Uh, I think you'll find very helpful. It was here last, last service. So if you have a Bible with you, why don't you uh, turn to the book of John, chapter 6, verse 38. John, chapter 6, verse 38. We're going to think about these words this morning. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this opportunity today to come here and just to stop, just to pause, just to rest in many ways, but also to hear from you. We uh, live in a world where there are so many voices that are speaking into our lives and even our own voice, which is constantly talking inside of our own heads. But today, it's our desire to hear your voice. And we pray that you would help Gary and strengthen him as he teaches us this morning. Uh, help us to hear your voice through your word today. Give us receptive hearts. We pray that you would give us sharp minds 
And we pray that you would give us the wisdom and the clarity to know how to apply those things that we will hear today into our lives. We trust you for that. We depend upon your spirit for that this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a question. What was the thread of Jesus' life? If you were to picture him as this bracelet, a lot of us would focus on the beads. So I'd say the miracles he did, the teachings, his acts. But what was the thread that held all of the beads together? What made him do what he did? The thread might determine, was it a mistake for him to choose Judas as a disciple, or was it essential that he did. Why did Jesus do miracles in one place and not in another? Why did he end up going to Calvary? What was the thread that held all of the beads together? When I ask that, so many people get it wrong. I, I think they think, well, maybe Jesus came to teach us how to love, and he did that. Jesus loved like nobody else did so that he redefined what love is. But that was a bead in his life. I don't think that was a thread. Some people might say, well, Jesus came to give us an example, and he gave us the best example of anyone who ever lived. But again, I believe that was a bead, not the thread. So I said, well, he came to help the poor, to heal the sick, to teach the ignorant. And again, he did that. I would say all of those were beads, not the thread. I'm, I'm looking for the one thread. And someone else said, oh, I got it. The thread in his life was he came to die for our sins, so that we even say that was a bead in his life. It wasn't thread. What was the thread that held everything together? And the reason I ask that is understanding Jesus' thread and making it our thread, it's been revolutionary for me. It changes how I look at every day and moment by moment directs what I do, wanting to have the same thread of my life that Jesus had for his. Unfortunately, you don't have to take my opinion. You, you shouldn't. Who am I to say that? Jesus told us himself what the thread was. In John 6, 34, he said, The one thread in his life that directed everything he did was daily, moment by moment, surrendering to the will of his heavenly Father. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven. Not to give you an example, not just to love, not to help the sick. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You can actually frame Jesus' entire life around this thread. At the beginning of his ministry, he's like this rabbi rock star. It's the spring. Everybody's excited. The disciples are so thrilled and honored to be a part of this. They see what's going on in public. Crowds are gathering around him. But they saw something in private that was even more powerful to them than what they saw in public. That Jesus prayed like no religious leader they had ever seen pray. And they pull him aside. Jesus, can you teach us how to pray like you pray? Jesus said, I can do that. And he gave them a model prayer that you've all heard. But look at it from this perspective. Matthew 6, 9 through 10. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
Uh, so familiar to us, we don't realize how radical it was. But up to that time, people would pray to what they thought was God or the gods. And it was almost always trying to convince God or the gods to do what they wanted them to do. I will pray to you because I want you to change something. I want you to do something for me. I want you to make something happen. Jesus completely turns this around and says, no, prayer isn't getting God to do what we want him to do. Prayer is aligning ourselves with God's will. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Nobody had prayed like that. But let me ask us today, is that how we pray? If I'm honest with you, I'm more motivated to pray when I, got, when I want God to change something the way I want it to be changed. When I want Him to do something that I want to be done. And Jesus said, no, that's not the threat of our life. That's not the focus of prayer. It's aligning ourselves with the will of God. It's a whole different way to live. We go forward three years. Now Jesus is ending his life on this earth. And far from it being an exciting time for the disciples, it's sobering. There's this almost this heaviness around Jesus that the disciples had never seen before. He's, he's so serious and he's somber. And they still fall asleep and Jesus goes away by himself to pray. And what does he pray? Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. What Jesus is saying, God, if there is any other way that this will can be accomplished, that they can be saved, that we can be reconciled, let's do that. Let's find another way. But then he ends as he had taught his disciples to pray, but not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus taught it to his disciples. He lived it. The thread of his life was the will of God. In fact, he told them in John 4, 34, my food, what nourishes me, what gives me strength, what helps me go on is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. That's the thread of Jesus's life. Now, here's where we need to make the jump. Jesus said it should be the thread of our lives as well. And this is where the Christian life becomes full and powerful and worthy of giving ourselves over to. If we think the thread of our life is just to be forgiven and saved, we don't know the fullness and the power, moment by moment, the miracles that can happen when we live for the will of God instead of our own. But Paul insists that to be a Christian isn't to do what our will is, but to do what the will of God is. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christ died for all. Why? So that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven. That's how many Christians would answer, but that's not how Paul answers. He says, Christ died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. Henry Drummond, a brilliant thinker in the late 18th century, said this, the end of life is to do God's will. That is the object of your life and mine, to do God's will. It is not to be happy or to be successful or famous or to do the best we can. It is something far higher than this, to do God's will. And what I hope comes through when I ask for God's help to do this is this wouldn't be seen as a heavy obligation 
This would be seen as the path to true life. Think about what rips you apart, what frustrates you, what brings so much just angst into your life. Isn't it trying to please everybody and you know you can't? Your parents want something of you. Your kids ask this. Your friends expect that. Your spouse hopes you'll do that. And you have your own expectations of what you think you should do. And eventually you're going to come to the position where you realize, I can't please everyone. It's impossible because if I do what he wants, she'll be frustrated. If I do what she wants, he'll be angry. And you can't find peace in that life. Others' expectations. When you learn that the threat of your life is the threat of Jesus' life, and that's to do moment by moment the will of the Father because you can please one person. If you're taking directions from one opinion, you can do that. And that's the Christian life. What does this mean? This can set you free. You were not created to make your parents proud, to please your children, to make your spouse happy or your boss rich. That's not the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is to do the will of God. Now, it has a lot of different elements. I want to focus on two where I think we kind of push back against the will of God and where we need to find freedom And the first thing that surrendering to God's will means is surrendering to God's moral will, his moral will. I spent a lot of time in campus ministry working with college students, and by far the most common question I would get from younger people is, what does God want me to do? What is God's will for my life? I heard it so often, and one time an earnest young man said that. I said, you know what, I actually know God's will for your life. Really? Yeah, God told me. His will for your life. Let's get together for lunch. I'm going to tell you God's will. He was so excited. We sat down. He's eager. I open up my Bible to 1 Thessalonians 4.3 and read this. It is God's will that you should be holy. His face fault. What else have you got? <laughs> That's not what he was looking for. No, anything but that. And I said, but this is God's word to you. His will is that you should be Holy, I find often with younger people, you're obsessed. You think of God's will as where you should go and what you should do. Fair questions. But the will of God first addresses who you should be. Not just what you should do, but who you should be. A person of compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience and love. Not a person of anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language and lying. That comes from Colossians 3. That God's will is that you be someone who resembles Him. Even more important than what you do. Because when you are who God wants you to be, what you do becomes more obvious. But if you are pushing against who God wants you to be, you'll never have a clear mind to know what He wants you to do because you'll have false motivations. Maybe anger. Maybe selfish ambition. Maybe pride that will direct what you do. So first, we have to focus on what we are called to be, to listen to God. I speak to a lot of pastors' conferences and some denominational conferences. And after one, just a few years ago, the head of the denomination pulled me aside and said, Boy, you are a lone wolf. I said, What are you talking about? He goes, Giving a talk on holiness? Nobody does that these days. And it breaks my heart because holiness has such a... Awful reputation. It's seen as this legalistic burden, as a hard word, when it is exact opposite. It's the way to freedom. I am a Dallas Willard fanboy. If you want great 
brilliant works on spiritual formation. I've never been disappointed by a Dallas Willard book. They're not easy to read, but they're worth the labor. They're powerful. And he challenged me when he said, Jesus didn't remove the need to obey. He transformed why we obey. And not understanding that distinction has really set the church back. We don't obey to become saved. That is done in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection. But the fact that we don't have to obey to be saved doesn't mean it doesn't matter whether we obey. Because where we're not obeying, we're bringing much grief into our life and shame into our life and regret into our life and much angst into our life. And when I look at the difference between the ancients and the moderns, I love to read old literature, Christian classics, and people say, what is a Christian classic? Any book that's been read that was written hundreds of years ago, books today have a shelf life somewhere between yogurt and milk. They just don't last very long. But if a book has been read that long, and the difference I see in these great works of old, that today's Christians are obsessed with salvation. Am I saved? Are you saved? The ancients were obsessed with holiness, and it completely changed the way they lived their life. In fact, a lot of books in the old talk about growing toward perfection. John Wesley had a famous book called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. Now, I think he probably regretted using that word because he spent his whole life trying to redefine it because it became so contentious. But when you look at what he meant... This was the path of freedom. He says, if God can save me from the worst of sin, why can't he save me from all of it? He said, here's what I mean by perfection. I don't want anger to influence how I treat anybody, whether they sin against me or whether they cut me off in traffic. I don't want anger to direct what I do. I don't want lust to impact the way I look at a single person of the opposite Sex. I don't want selfish ambition to direct me for one minute of my life. I don't want my life to be directed by selfish ambition. I don't want covetousness to steal my joy. He goes, why shouldn't I expect that God will completely deliver me from that? If he'll deliver me from a little, why not all? And why do I think I'm better with a little bit of anger in my heart? Do I think I'm okay with just some slander and that that won't impact my relationships or a tiny sliver of loss really won't set me aside? Why wouldn't I want to be free from all of it? He said, you pray for financial provision. I know you do. He goes, you pray for people's health when they get sick. Do you pray just as earnestly for holiness in every aspect of your life? And here's the challenge. Again, it's not heavy. You say, if you knew the blessing of holiness, the peace and the joy that comes from always surrendering to God's moral will, it would be what you pray for most because it is a lie of Satan that holiness is a burden. Holiness is never a burden. Pursuing holiness is not a burden. It's sin that's a burden. It's sin that destroys our life. In fact, sometimes I wonder if sin brings it to remain. A few years back when we were still living in Texas, we had a plumbing problem and it flooded part of the floor, including a closet where I had a lot of boxes and files and whatnot. So we had to pull up the carpeting and I had to take all the boxes out and I put them in my office where I worked. There were probably eight to ten boxes that were just piled up there. And I thought, I'm not going to just put them back in the closet. I really need to go through them. I've been meaning to. So I'm going to go through them this weekend. I won't put them away right now. 
But then there was a game on that weekend. I thought, I got next weekend. I'll just go through them then. And that didn't really happen. Well, Christmas vacation is coming up. So how about if I do it over Christmas vacation? But Christmas is a busy time. Okay, this is my New Year's resolution. I'm going to clean out my box. And then it became the next year's New Year's resolution. And it just never happened until we decided we were going to sell the house. Do we have any realtors here? What's the first thing a realtor will tell you if you want to sell your house? Declutter. you got to get out. I said, okay, I've got to finally go through these boxes. So I went through, and it did. It took all of a Saturday, 8 to 10 hours. And then the next Monday when I came into work in my office, I sat down. And it was like, oh, it's so nice not to have this clutter. It's, it's so fun to be able to walk to my desk without having to go through an obstacle course. It just looks nice. The feng shui, some people would say. I mean, it's just so much better. I thought, why didn't I get rid of these boxes two years ago? Why have I lived with this mess, destroying my peace? I was going to put in the work anyway. Why didn't I put it in back then? And I could have had two years of this. That's just like the spiritual burden of sin. We keep letting certain sins destroy our relationships, destroy our reputation, destroy our peace, destroy our finances. And if we could see what it would be like if we would just do the work, surrender it to God, maybe go for accountability, talk to others, a counsel, figure out how to get rid of it, then we would live with that same spiritual freedom when you find physical freedom cleaning out the junk. And so practicing Holiness is not about getting to heaven. That's not it at all. In fact, rather than practicing holiness being about getting into heaven, for me, it's about trying to make my wife's life not feel like hell. I mean, think about it. Who bears the greatest burden of your sin? You're not going to be damned for your sin if you're in Christ. It's your parents. It's your kids. It's your spouse. It's your friends. They bear the burden when we don't take holiness seriously. So the easiest way i found to surrender to God's moral will is just to recognize the absurdity of sin. If we would just take sin apart and say, why do I even do it? Why is it even a temptation? It never works out. It never makes things better. It always imprisons me. It creates massive disturbances in our lives. It's what wrecks our relationships Let me say something to the men real quick. This is worth all your price of admission, which I know was free today, but if you did pay price of admission, 87% of men who cheat on their wives want to go back after the affair is over. If any of you are tempted this morning, I'm standing up and saying statistically, there is basically a 90% chance that you will wake up And you will say that destroying your kid's home, hurting the woman that you made those promises to, was the greatest regret of your life. Now, if I have any choice, and somebody says, Gary, 90% chance this is the wrong choice, 10% chance it might work, I'm not even going to question that I want to take that 90% chance. But how often we do that because we don't understand the absurdity of sin. And let me say to the younger people, I I so applaud those who are in recovery groups. There's churches all over the nation where people, whether it's substance abuse, it could be a sex addiction or anything like that, and they go to meetings every week. The gold standard, if you're a hardcore addict, is 30 meetings in 30 days. 
and you call your sponsors and you're reading books and you're listening to podcasts and you're making phone calls and all of that. I so applaud that work. But here's what I want to tell you, those who aren't yet addicted. If somebody is willing to work that hard to get rid of a sin you might be tempted by, do you want to open the door and let it into your life? if they will spend so much time and money and effort to walk free of it, why would we invite that into our life? And yet you're in an age where people will say, this will make life better. It will make life fun. It will make life easier. When the people who have been there would say, no, it is one of the greatest regrets of my life. It's the thing I spend the most time trying to get rid of. God's commands, we just sang about the goodness of God, a brilliant song. God's commands aren't arbitrary. God isn't a killjoy. He loves you, which means every one of his commands are there for your good. The surprising message of holiness is this, that joy and peace and happiness are hidden behind goodness. God wants you to live a life of joy. He wants you to have peace. Not be afraid of getting caught. He wants you to have happiness. And he knows the path to that is to live a righteous life. I'm actually turning 61 tomorrow. And when I look back, again, speaking to the young people here, Literally every time I knew there was a decision that God wanted me to make and I wanted to do this, every time, without exception, every time I went against the will of God, I regret it. Every time I've chosen to surrender to God's moral will for my life, I'm so glad I did. And when you're my age, I believe you'll feel the same way too. So why not just look ahead and use the experience of us older ones where we've messed up and say, okay, I don't want to make the mistakes they made. When I'm their age, and eventually it will happen. I know you can't believe it. Eventually you get there. And for us older people, then why doesn't that inform us? You know that's true. If you're in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, I bet if you look back, you say, yeah, that's right. Why doesn't that inform our future choices? If we know we always regretted not surrendering to God's moral will, why is it even a temptation that we would consider doing something else? The second way we surrender, not just to God's moral will, but to God's path for our life. It might not necessarily be a moral issue, but what God wants us to do, there is an important part of that, what he's calling us to. And, and this has been a, a long journey for me. I grew up wanting to be a writer. I was one of those that from early on, I knew what I wanted to do, um, in large part because I can't really do anything else. Anybody would pay me. I'm a man of remarkably limited gifting. Uh, I'm not very good with numbers, which frustrated my wife one time because she was homeschooling our kids and teaching them math. And she says, Kelsey, how are you going to succeed in life if you don't know math? And Kelsey said, Daddy doesn't know math, and he's done pretty good. So that wasn't really helpful in that case. I'm not good being over people. I'm a mechanical idiot. One time when we were really poor, and I thought I would change our own oil in our car. People did that more back then. I thought, man, high school dropouts change oil for a living. I can figure this out. I've got a master's degree. So I got under the car. And for the life of me, I couldn't get the plug off the drain pan to drain the oil. I worked on that for half an hour, and it just wouldn't come off. 
until I found out the reason it wouldn't come off is I was tightening it. And I stripped it. <laughs> so now it leaks, right? So Lisa has to take it to the mechanic to get it fixed. I was too embarrassed to do it. She came home and said, honey, I'm sorry. We just can't afford for you to work on the cars anymore. <laughs> and my nine-year-old son looks at me when he hears this with this thing. Nine years old. He goes, dad, it's righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. How difficult is that? I thought, where did you learn that? I mean, my dad could do it. My son could do it. It just skipped this generation. There's nothing I could do. I just so wanted to write, and I believed that God had called me to write, but it was not easy. In fact, after I finished schooling, I went through eight straight years. I counted, I have the rejections, 120 straight rejections of book ideas and articles and proposals where professional after professional after professional said, nope, it's not going to happen. And I was so close to giving up after six years of this. I was so frustrated. I said, God, I need to get a different job. I was already working a full-time job, but I, I can't reserve any time for writing. I'm just wasting my vacation time. This isn't working out. And I woke up one time, and I could sense God saying, right, right, right. And I said, wrong, wrong, wrong. It's not working. It's not going to happen. And then these words that might have seemed comforting, they broke my heart. And God doesn't usually speak this definitely to me. But I felt I heard two years. And I was in, I, I can't do this another. It's been, I can't do it another two years. This isn't fair. And you might be skeptical. I understand if you are, but almost to the day, two years from now, is when my first national article was accepted. And then a month later, another one. And then a few months later, the first book contract. And it just went from there. So I, I, I want, again, young people understand just because God calls you to something, doesn't mean he makes it easy. It may break your heart. You may think this isn't fair, but if you know that God has called you to it, you keep working. And you know, if God has called you to marriage and 50 people have turned you down, yeah, well, I, I still, I'm going to be, you, you just got to get there and you look back and, and you're glad. And I am so glad I did. I, I don't say this to boast just to make a point, but today around the world, there are 2 million books with my name on them. And I look back, and every rejection was worth what it took to get here. And I know we're going to talk to singles tonight, and I know it's not easy to find someone, and women particularly tell me finding a solid Christian man isn't easy. And my, my encouragement is you only need one, right? It doesn't matter if there are 12 people. You, you just get to marry one, and it's worth having your heart broken sometimes. It's worth going through the hassle of dating. Dating can be terrible, but if you know that God has called you to this, surrender to that and to pursue it. Even if 120 professionals say no, all you need is one God who says yes. I'll say this again. Even if 120 professionals tell you no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't carry as much weight if one God tells you yes. But in the midst of this, we have to be ready to be redirected because sometimes God has to destroy our plans to show us his. I think of Sir James Thornhill, he was the most celebrated painter in Europe in the early 18th century. We got a picture of him up here. And because of that, he's chosen to paint the inside of the cupola of St. Paul's, London. We got a picture here. It's one of the greatest works of art of that century. Now, that's a cupola, which means it's way up in the top of a cathedral, hundreds of feet above a stone floor. And he was chosen to paint that. And I want you to think of the early 18th century scaffolding. 
It wasn't like they have now with steel and, and, and you know, buttressed up and you go up with a mechanized thing to get up there. I mean, you would climb up the scaffolding and it was really rickety. But he was so absorbed in it. One time he finished a beautiful section of it and he wanted to see how it looked far away. And so he's, he's kind of looking at it and he's stepping back and he's trying to get the light. And he kept going back and his assistant, who was right there by the painting, saw that he was running out of scaffolding. And he realized one more step and he would fall off. And there's no way he would have survived that fall. It was hundreds of feet to a stone floor. But then he thought, but if I call out, I might cause him to be startled. And if he's startled, he could fall off the scout. He thought, how do I save this great man's life? And the only thing he could think of was almost too horrific to imagine. But he did it. He grabbed a paintbrush and put it in, in a thing of black paint. And then he just created a swath over the masterpiece, and it worked. Thornhill stopped in his tracks, and he charged forward to throw his assistant off the scaffolding. Why would you do that until the assistant said, you are half a step away from dying? And Thornhill realized that masterpiece had to be wrecked. Masterpieces. What if God wants to destroy the relationship you're in that you want so much because he knows it's not healthy for you, and he's got something better what if the job flames out or the major doesn't work you don't get into that college and it's not that God isn't being kind to you it's just he's being overly generous saying I know what you want and it's not right for you I've got something even different will you give God time will you surrender to his vocational will for your life his relational will ultimately This calls us just to reevaluate ourselves this morning. What is the thread that holds your days together? Why do you make the decisions you make? Why do you spend your energy where you do? Is it ambition? You're going to make your name known. You're going to get rich. You're going to have pleasure. All of these things that at the end of your life, you're going to look back and say, it was wasted time. Paul and the example of Jesus would call us to an entirely different thread The will of God. Drummond again. We may never be famous or powerful or called to heroic suffering or acts of self-denial which will vibrate through history. That though we are neither intended to be apostles nor missionaries nor martyrs but to be common people living in common houses, spending the day in common offices or common kitchens yet doing the will of God there. Catch this. We shall do as much as apostle or missionary or martyr. Seeing that they can do no more than God's will where they are, even as we can do as much where we are, and answer the end of our life as truly, faithfully, and triumphantly as they. Do you believe you can live as significant a life as a famous martyr from of old? See, if the threat of your life is to do the will of God, whether that's to work for the Department of Transportation, whether it's to be a kindergarten teacher or work in a preschool, you are doing exactly as much, pleasing God exactly as much as God that calls somebody to live their life in the flames. I know we want these big calls. And some people say, well, Gary, I don't think your life is a good example because you did make it. You you, you said you've sold two million books. But if, if that isn't God's will, in the end... It doesn't matter. We all have these pockets of of influence. When Lisa and I were in an earlier home, we had this next door neighbor, and she heard people talking that they'd heard me on the radio or they'd seen things. She saw that Lisa and I were traveling a lot. 
And one day she was out in the yard and she calls Lisa and she goes, this is kind of embarrassing, but I've just been wondering this. I just, I have a question. And Lisa goes, okay. She goes, is, is Gary famous? And Lisa asks that, what am I supposed to say? I go, that's the easiest question in the world to answer. If you have to ask if somebody's famous, the answer is no, right? By definition, if you're famous, they don't have to ask if you're famous. But we all have our pockets. You might be the top real estate salesman. You might be teacher of the year or principal of the country or whatnot. And all of those things, what matters is not how others recognize. What matters is if today, this moment, you're in the will of God. And that matters as much to God whether you're a martyr, a missionary, or anything else. Because if we don't, if we don't have this attitude, that's where we miss the miracles. I think of Kent Nurburn. He was a taxi driver. And not a taxi, he actually worked the night shift, which is like, that's, that's really getting, how can that be holy? How can that be good? And one night he got a call like at 2 or 3 a.m., and it was a certain part of town, and when he, the dispatch told him, he said, oh, no. Because at this time of night, I know it's one of two things. Somebody got drunk, and I got to take them home so they might vomit in my taxi. Or it's domestic violence, which is a nightmare. But when you drive the taxi through the night and the dispatch calls you, you go. So he pulls up to this fourplex. It's dark. Just 100-watt bulb in the center. And everything within him said, can't keep driving. He said, you don't make it long as a taxi driver if you go up in that neighborhood to a dark fourplex at three in the morning. You just don't do it. But he was a Christian. He sensed God's spirit saying, it's okay. So against his better judgment, he went up to the door and he knocks and he hears this frail, elderly voice, a woman just a minute. And he heard some rumbling around, and then the door was opened. There's an elderly woman with an old-fashioned pillbox hat, a small little suitcase. She asked him, would you please take my suitcase? And he grabbed it. She locked the door, and he put the suitcase in the trunk, and he opened up the door, and he got her in. He said, where can I take you? And she gave him the address. But then she said, can we go through downtown first? He said, well, that's not the quickest way. She goes, that's okay. I'm not in a hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. He looks in the rearview mirror. She goes, all of my family is gone. The doctors say I don't have long to live, and I should just go to a hospice. Kent turned off the meter. He said, where do you want to go? They drove through her childhood. They drove through her young adulthood. They drove through the years when she was a grandma, they drove through her life. And Kent said it was one of the most amazing two hours, maybe the most amazing two hours he's ever spent on this planet. Here's what he said. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they had first been married. She made me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she would have me slow down and say nothing. Eventually the light started to peek over the horizon. 
And she said, I'm, I'm tired. We should just go to the hospice now. So Kent drove her to the hospice. Some orderlies came out. He got the suitcase out of the car and handed it to the orderlies. The woman looked at him and said, how much do I owe you? Kent said, nothing. She said, you have to earn a living. He said, there are other passengers. She reached up and she hugged him. She said, you've given an old woman a great night on one of the last nights of her life. Kent got back in the taxi. He never turned the meter back on. He never turned the light on. He, he was done. He felt like he had lived a miracle, and he thought about how it could have been destroyed if, if another driver had gotten. He knew the other drivers, most of whom would never have stopped there. They would have left her waiting all night long. They just said it's not safe to go up there at that time of night. Or he could imagine some that might have picked her up, and then they would say, come on, lady, we got I'm not going to sit out here in front of an empty warehouse all night long. Just tell me where you want to go. And he was so grateful that God let him be there for her. He felt God's presence, perhaps like he never had before. And it changed the way he looked at life, surrendering to God's call, surrendering to that moment. Here's what he said. We are so conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments. But great moments often catch us unawares. When that woman hugged me, and said that I'd brought her a moment of joy, it was possible to believe that I'd been placed on earth for the sole purpose of providing her with that last ride. I do not think that I've done anything in my life that was more important than that. Which means tomorrow, if you make the will of God the thread of your life, whether you're going to school or an office, or staying home with the kids, or going out to coffee. When you say, God, my, my, my call today is just to do what you want me to do, moment by moment. That's when God brings miracles into your life. It doesn't have to be some big thing, some famous thing, especially we're just so lured away by that. It's, God, help me to reach others, reach others through me in a way I couldn't plan, in a way that I couldn't know. And that's where life takes off. That's the Christian life. Because everything else we seek, it just doesn't last. Jesus says in first, or John says in 1 John 2.17, the world and its desires are passing away. Wanting to be famous, to be wealthy, to have power, to be appreciated. You can get that. But when you die, it dies with you. But when the thread of your life is the same thread that it was for Jesus doing the will of your heavenly Father, John says those who do the will of God, they live forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray by your spirit this would seen as, be seen as a word of inspiration and invitation, not heaviness. There are some, they just need to let go of their resistance to you. They're pursuing things, maybe dishonesty and financial dealings, 
maybe moral decisions, maybe flirting with relationships that they know aren't appropriate. And Lord, this is your kind word saying, you don't have to go there. You can find peace. Turn around. Repentance is an invitation. It's not awful. And Lord, some that feel like life hasn't turned out like they thought, like maybe there's no purpose, and yet you want them to see Beginning this afternoon, it can be a new life if they will submit themselves to you and watch you bring those great moments into their life. This is the life we want to live, the life that you created us to live, a life lived with you. And I pray we wouldn't settle for less. In Jesus' name, amen.